Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the topics across business and economics that matter most to Canadians. I'm your co-host, Sarah Bartnika. And I'm Taylor Scollum. So Taylor, last week, we had a pretty interesting conversation about Silicon Valley Bank, the fallout that, of course, we've been following over the last two weeks. And I know it got both of us thinking a little bit more about why we haven't really seen something similar in Canada or why there doesn't really seem to be uh, the same type of vulnerability among Canadian banks. So in my perspective, or at least my view is that like, I think before the past two weeks, I didn't think a whole lot about Canadian banks. I don't think a lot of us do. It's something, it's something that you kind of take for granted. I mean, I'm not going to ask you who you bank with, but I'm wondering, how do you, what is your interaction with the banking system? Is there a reason you chose the bank that you are with over another? I mean, what's yeah. the story there? Yeah, I think I just went with the one that was closest to my house when I was in high school and needed to open my first account. And, and I've just stayed with them forever. There's no real thought or, or rationale that goes into it. Uh, but I, I think it's time after reading all this news about Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks, Credit Suisse, that have gotten into trouble to really understand what is going on with the banking system and why do we not have to think about it, you know? Like, I, I saw these people after Silicon Valley Bank went under talking about, oh, depositors should have known not to put their money in there because it was risky. And to me, that's just crazy. Like, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I have no idea what my bank does as a business. I just know that I can go there and get my money out when I need it, and that's enough for me. But fortunately, there are uh, people in this country who do think a lot about the banks and know a lot about how our banking system works. And we're very fortunate to have a fantastic guest on today who can explain all of that to us and really how our banking system came to be what it is today and why it's so different from what exists in America. So John Turley Ewart is a regulatory and compliance consultant, a Canadian financial historian and former associate editor of the Financial Post. And he had a great piece in the Financial Post last week uh, explaining why uh, Canada's banking system is the way it is, why something like Silicon Valley Bank is unlikely to ever happen here. So uh, thank you, John, for coming on and talking to us about all of that. Thank you, Taylor. Good to meet you and good to meet you, Sarah. So I think a good place to start would just be a, a question that's been top of mind for people recently with everything that's been going on in the States, which is why do Canadian banks not seem to fail anymore? Well, uh, you know, we have a very different history, political history, obviously, than in the United States. And that also uh, translates into our banking history. Uh, you know, when Canada was founded in 1867, we had about 3.4 million people. And the promise, of course, was uh, through this uh, new union of, of, you know, Lower Canada, Upper Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, we would have a much more um, prosperous uh, life. We would have uh, greater opportunities. Uh, we'd be able to grow. And, of course, we were always looking south to the United States, which seemed to be doing so well. And so uh, through this union, uh, the creation of Canada, the idea was we're going to have uh, more opportunities to uh, grow our economy and make lots of money. And what is important to doing that? Banks. And so for Canada, uh, Confederation really kicked off 
uh, a big debate about what kind of banking system we should have um, because we wanted one that would grow the economy, that would provide credit. Um, but we also had another concern, and the other concern was safety. So when you put your money in a bank, you wanted to be sure that it actually was there when you needed it. And at the time, uh, uh, banks also issued bank notes. So rather than have uh, you know a note in your pocket, you know fifty dollar bill from let's say you know the Bank of Canada today, you'd have a ten dollar note um, from the Bank of Montreal. And so uh, basically, a, a large portion of the circulation, the note circulation, um, was issued by our our banks, and also the deposits were you know obviously important. So when a bank went down, let's say you're holding a, a bank note that belonged to uh, Commercial Bank of uh, Kingston, uh, you had no idea what that was worth. So when you went into the store to buy, you know, your groceries, and that bank has failed, uh, you know, the, the the merchant is saying, "Yeah, you got anything else uh, to pay with? Because that's uh, that bank uh, <laughs> isn't open, right?" So that that was kind of a problem. So so you know, it was obviously a great concern. We did have just prior to Confederation, there is um, there was a bank called the Upper Bank of Canada. It failed in 1866. Uh, it was involved in a lot of bad mortgage loans, uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, the debating in Confederation in 1867 is you want uh, a bank that grows the economy, economy, but that's safe. And and so in in contrast to the United States, uh, you know we had um, the idea of about having banks that are national, meaning uh, banks that can expand across the country um, and uh, don't simply serve local populations, uh, but serve national populations. Uh, and the idea again was, if you're out in Nova Scotia and you have a lot of deposits, but you have nowhere to lend that money out, if you open up a branch, say in Quebec uh, or one in Ontario, you can put that money to work. Uh, and you can help that bank uh, generate more revenues. And it also diversifies um, your portfolio of loans. So, for example, rather than being concentrated in uh, one part of the country, um, if something goes wrong there, you're in trouble. But if you're spread across the country and let's say there's you know bad harvests uh, in Ontario, but things are going great in Nova Scotia, you kind of smooth things out. And so we saw some of this uh, problems with the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, was uh, concentrated largely in uh, one sector, uh, and that would be the tech sector. That many of its clients were, most of its clients were tech sector clients. Um, it also was regionally focused, California. Uh, now, back to the history part, we didn't want any of that. We wanted to have a national banking system. And in 1871, uh, we had a tremendous debate about what kind of banking system we should have. Um, and even in the years before that, leading up to it. So, um, it took three finance ministers to come up with our Bank Act. Um, the first finance minister, a fellow called uh, uh, Galt, uh, he wanted uh, to bail out the, the bank in Kingston, Ontario. If you remember, I mentioned the Commercial Bank of Kingston, Ontario. Soon after Confederation, uh, it found itself in trouble. Uh, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald uh, came from Kingston, Ontario. Uh, he owed the bank uh, $80,000, which was an enormous sum of money. Um, and Galt was on the board of, of uh, the Kingston Bank as well. 
Uh, Andy was the finance minister back then. Conflict of interest wasn't uh, it wasn't seen <laughs> no, that way. It was actually seen <laughs> as a, a, a bonus because the thought was again, you know, people are thinking, how can we grow the economy? How can we create new opportunities? If the finance minister uh, is someone who understands, runs banks, runs you know a, a business, you know this is someone who's going to get the need for for credit. So he wanted to bail out this bank. Problem was. We were too poor to bail out banks, uh, and there was too many banks that would need to be bailed out. So that first bank, uh, McDonald said, "No, uh, we're not going to bail it out," and they let it fail. So uh, that was uh, a real key turning point uh, in our banking history. And as a result of that, uh, Galt resigned. Uh, people actually did resign back then um, on principle because he felt uh, the bank should have been bailed out. And then we started marching towards our Bank Act in 1871. Uh, which uh, involved a number of debates, including uh, bringing into the country the um, option of the U.S. banking system that we saw emerge after Andrew Jackson uh, in the 1820s and 1830s, where you had small local banks, and they would be supported by large commercial banks. So to put this in national context or today's context, imagine uh, Federal Republic Bank of San Francisco, uh, you see J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, the big, huge commercial banks supplying that bank with capital and credit. Well, uh, a guy called Sir John Rose, who took over after Galt, proposed bringing in uh, the very American system that you see today. So you would have local banks, and then you would have very large commercial banks. And those local banks would serve you know, the local regions and the cities and the towns. Um, hmm. And the big commercial banks, like the Bank of Montreal, would help keep those regional banks, local banks in business and some of the other ones. But there was a problem with that. Uh, the folks in Ontario had no interest in being uh, under the boot, as they would say, of folks in Montreal. They did not want to have their supply of credit in any way limited by the folks in Montreal. Because remember, people are competing back in these days for who's going to be the financial capital? Where's all the economic growth going to come from? And so uh, Sir John Rose uh, brought forward this American banking system and uh, people shouted it down. Uh, they would not allow uh, this kind of banking system uh, to occur. When I say shouted it down, I mean in the House of Commons, in uh, McDonald's uh, cabinet and in his caucus. Uh, so Sir John Rose had to resign. Uh, you know, he walked away. What ended up happening in the end is that bankers themselves uh, worked with the government and wrote the Bank Act 1871. So the Bank Act that they finally settled on, is, is that the regulation that we're basically left with today? Did that shape the banking system as it exists now? It absolutely did, but in ways that uh, most people don't really understand. And so just for a little background, uh, you know, I started working in banking uh, when I was 19, um, I worked uh, in banking for about uh, 10 years while I did uh, my BA, uh, then I did an MA in economics, and then I did a PhD uh, under the supervision of a guy called Michael Bliss. Uh, Bliss wrote a book called um, Northern Enterprise, Five Centuries of Canadian Business. I wrote the introduction to the, the recent version of that. Um, he's, he, he passed away a few years ago, but he was like the key business historian in Canada. And so I went and worked with him uh, and I said to him, I want to write a PhD on Canadian banking. And so what I essentially did was write uh, the history of the Canadian Bankers Association. But out of that history comes a history of regulation of banks in Canada. 
And the Bank Act 1871 contained a lot of interesting rules. Like, for example, if you wanted to start a bank, you needed to have $500,000 in capital. Also, you had to uh, submit monthly bank returns, balance sheets, to the finance department, which would be published. Uh, there was limits on how much interest you could charge uh, for a loan, for example. There was also restrictions on whether you could get into mortgage lending. But the, you know, the question that uh, nobody asked, or at least that I didn't see other historians ask who uh, went in and looked at banking, was who enforced any of these rules? And so what I did is I went through um, literally tens of thousands of documents in the finance department archives, national archives, um, archives across the country for finance ministers and prime ministers and, and so forth. And basically what I found out is that the Bank Act 1871 was a dead letter, meaning there's lots of nice stuff written uh, you know, in the act, but none of it was enforced. So, for example, the idea that you needed $500,000 to start a bank, that was written in the Bank Act. But most banks that started didn't have half a million dollars at all. Not at all. So and here's how you would get around that, right? So you would go to a friendly uh, local bank who would drop some money into your bank, and then you would say, hey, look, we got money in the bank. But no one asked where you got the money from, right? The assumption was, oh, look, all these people invested. Then you hand it back to your friend, and you've got your charter, and then you invite people in to start depositing. And so they start depositing their money with you, and then what you're hoping is that you will then be able to lend that money out at a higher interest rate um, than what you're paying for deposits. There was nothing to, to stop them from doing these things. So is that why we saw so, like we continued to see bank failures in Canada up through the 20s because the regulations were there, but the enforcement was like non-existent? Well, yeah, we saw two things. We saw uh, a lot of dynamic growth because what happens is when you, you have a, essentially a free banking system, uh, which we had in Canada, meaning it's free of regulation, Banks can issue notes, their own uh, circulation, which they make money off of. They can take deposits, do loans. Uh, what you saw is a lot of uh, economic growth. It was a boom-bust cycle. Remember, Canada is an agricultural country, right? Meaning that most people are farmers. Uh, the cities are very small. Uh, we rely on, uh, you know, the grain crop, uh, you know, and and other, uh, you know, cattle and other uh, fruits, vegetables, potatoes to for people to make their money. Those things have to get to market. Uh, you know, so that's the kind of economy we had where it was a very basic, hey, you know, someone needs a loan to, you know, buy uh, their seed for their wheat farm. Um, hopefully that wheat price is going to be good. If things work out and, you know, there's demand for wheat and we can sell the wheat at a good price, for example, the bank gets paid, uh, you know, the farmer gets paid and everyone's happy. Uh, problem is, though, is, is uh, you know, when things go the wrong way. And you don't have that half a million dollar reserve you were supposed to have. You don't have reserve. You're not managing your risk. You're not thinking of what can happen in the, in the future. Uh, you know, the bank ends up getting itself in trouble because it's not making money. Its loans are not being repaid. People want to withdraw their deposits and you don't have the cash to, to pay them back. And so we saw that that cycle occur again because we didn't have any real inspection or enforcement of the Bank Act at all. Let's talk about enforcement. So who, in today's context, who's enforcing this rules now, the, the rules now? I hope the picture looks a little bit different than it did back then. 
Oh, absolutely. So, so today we have um, uh, OSFI, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. Uh, bank inspection uh, started in Canada uh, in uh, 1925, uh, and it really grew out of uh, the failure of the home bank in, in, in 1923. But let, let me just say, though, that home bank failure in 1923 is the thing that broke the camel's back. So for, for many years, for more than 20 years before that, uh, uh, a number of uh, people and bankers even had been arguing for bank inspection. Was okay. this while the national system was in place, John? So like they're past it. They're like, okay, we have a national system now, and yet we still have some problems. Right. So, so what you saw was, um, and I'll give you this: the way this the, the system evolved is so. After Confederation, we have a bunch of new banks that start. We had a whole bunch of older banks. Bank of Nova Scotia, for example, which started in 1832. Bank of Montreal, 1817. Royal Bank was in the 1830s as well. What those banks did is they started opening branches across the country. Then you had new smaller banks pop up, hoping to finance the new opportunities of, that the country promised, new immigration. And so you did have, uh, you know, I would say by 1900, you had uh, a, a national banking system in Canada, meaning that the large banks largely had branches everywhere uh, in every province and, and every city. Not obviously to the extent you see today, but for example, in 1901, Scotiabank moved their head office from Halifax to Toronto. And before that, they had been banking actually in Chicago, a huge uh, amount of work they did in Chicago. Mm -hmm. The money they made in Chicago, they used to finance their branch expansion right across Canada and into western, uh, into the western part of the country as well. So yes, by about 1900, we had a national banking system in place, but we still had a lot of small regional banks uh, and local banks that still existed that hadn't moved uh, into different parts of the country. So what change happened after 1925? Uh, well, I mean, the big change was all of a sudden the Bank Act was being enforced. And let me explain why this is important. So um, good loans and bad loans. You know, a, a good loan is a loan that's obviously getting paid. A bad loan is one that's not getting paid. What There's no standards before uh, bank inspection, meaning that when I'm submitting my returns to, uh, you know, the finance department, uh, you know, maybe Taylor hasn't, uh, you know, paid his loan for 10 years, but I think he's going to pay it someday. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, let's say, for example, uh, <laughs> Bank of Montreal, they might say, you know, it's, if a person hasn't paid their loan after, you know, on the due time, we're going to have to start writing this off. Right. This is a bad debt. Right. And they would reflect that in, in the returns and in their statements that they would, uh, you know, publicly. But not every bank did that because there was no common standard. Scotiabank was the first bank to have um, their books audited and audited and they published them in the newspaper. And this was around 19, 1902 that they did that. And they were also <laughs> one, one of the banks that, that advocated very vigorously for bank inspection. And the reason they did that is they knew like these other banks, a lot of the other banks were just lying through their teeth, completely lying through the, their teeth in terms of the, the, the bank statements that they would present to the public through their bank returns to the finance department. You know, they knew they had bad loans and, and, and but, you know, what does the bank do? You don't come out and say, you know, uh, for example, the Farmers Bank of Ontario uh, is, is, is a joke uh, and no one should bank there. Like, they're not going to say that publicly, right? But they know from their dealings in terms of settling 
uh, you know, uh, note exchanges and checks and, uh, you know, just by this market knowledge, whether or not, you know, certain banks actually have uh, any real substance behind them. Was the expectation at that time in history that, you know, I'm looking to set up an account at a bank to put my paycheck in and I'm flipping through the Sunday newspaper and reading like the financial statements of the banks to figure out if it's going to be there next week? Like were people expected to basically do their own due diligence on this or what was the deal there? Absolutely. And of course, people don't even do that today. Uh, and so one of the arguments again, against bank inspection uh, so, for example, there was a, a fellow named um, Sir Edmund Walker. So Sir Edmund Walker uh, saved the Bank of Commerce in 1888, but he was completely opposed to bank inspection because he said people should look at the banks, determine for themselves which one uh, is the safest bank, look at the management, look at their balance sheet, their returns. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, they, 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 you know it's, it's buyer beware. But the problem with that is you need some financial literacy. Um, and, you know, this is not something that existed back then. So, so you know, one of the ways that you, you would advertise yourself as a strong bank is you, you're, through your architecture. So you'll, you might see some, some old banks from the, the 19th, early 20th century that look like Greek temples. And that was a projection of, of endurance and financial, financial strength. Right. And right. so this was uh, very common uh, th that banks would do that. And if you, you know, this was how one of the ways you would advertise yourself uh, and, and in their bank notes that they printed, you often saw, again, sort of maybe one side would be sort of pastoral and the other side would have a very serious looking, you know, president of the bank or cashier of the bank, general CEO of the bank on there. And, and this is the way you kind of advertise. But people didn't really have any understanding of the balance sheet. And there was no common standards, as I said, to good loans, bad loans. It was really a matter of trust, what it came down to. The idea so, that we would have to be sifting through like the most balance sheets to like figure out whether this is a credible bank to give I'd it a positive. I'd be one of those people looking at the architecture and being like, oh, it looks good to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess when it comes to this, um, balancing preserving kind of a bank's role to kind of grow the economy while like also keeping it safe like what has been i guess what has been government's role in that is there still to some degree an expectation in our system that the depositor that the depositors have a certain level understanding of risk going into kind of an arrangement with a bank well you know in, in today i think much of that uh requirement to make uh, an assessment has been wrung out of the system. And what I mean by wrung out of the system is you've got Schedule 1, uh, you know, charter banks. You know, these are the big banks like Royal Bank, Bank of Montreal, Scotia, TD Bank. And so for you, it really would come down to as a consumer, uh, uh, as an individual retail consumer or as a business person, where do you get the best deal? Because no one in Canada is, is sifting through, uh, you know, the quarterly uh, and annual reports of these banks to decide where to put their money. What they're looking at is, you know, uh, how much does it cost to have a checking account there? What kind of interest did it give me on a GIC? So that kind of uh, work, if I could put it that way, or guessing game, is not part of our system anymore because we have bank inspection uh, and, and very good bank inspection. Uh, we also have, um, you know, internal audit of the banks. We have 
uh, you know, every bank has got a massive range of uh, risk management processes. And I know you wanted to talk about a little bit about risk management, but, you know, in terms of like what banks risk, there's, there's market risk, there's credit risk, there's interest rate risk, there's FX risk, there's commodity risk, there's regulatory risk, which I do. Uh, there's geopolitical risk. There is climate risk now. So, uh, you know, what's happened over, you know, the, the, the past couple hundred years in Canada is uh, the banks that you see today are the survivors, the ones who learn to manage risk the best, uh, the ones who mm-hmm. can manage a risk uh, very well in a global economy today. And their success um, is signaled by the fact that they're so boring. Boring is good in banking. I want to talk about risk. I also want to go back to this point about trust um, because obviously like banking is something that we don't really think about in Canada and that's not true for other parts of the world. I was um, looking at some World Bank data this morning um, which is, of course, how I start every morning. Uh, and I read that Canada has the ninth highest percentage of people with bank accounts over the age of 14 in the world at 99.63%. And so there's 25 countries where that percentage is 97 or higher. It's like Denmark, France, France the ones that you would expect. But around the world, uh, there's a lot less trust in the banking system. Um, the same percentage uh, in places like like Lebanon or Nicaragua or Egypt are between 20 to 30 percent. And in somewhere like Afghanistan, that number is under 10 percent. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what makes a banking system on the whole more trusted than another country to country. So, you know, really what it comes down to is when you go to get your money out of the bank, the bank can give you the money. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is you're able to withdraw your money when you need it. And importantly, uh, you know, the second piece is when you need credit, you can get credit, provided, of course, you're, you're credit worthy. So, you know, those are the two pieces that at an individual level, uh, retail, uh, you know, consumer level, that, that really is, is the key piece there. So if I have $100,000, I'm like a small business owner, I go to RBC, let's say, to open an account. Like, what does RBC have that, like, the National Bank of Egypt doesn't have? Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure about the Egyptians, <laughs> but but um, then let me let me put it this. Let me compare it to, for example, uh, a U.S. bank like uh, you know the First Republic Bank in, in, in San Francisco. So the difference, great example, between uh, RBC and and First Republic in in San Francisco is RBC has. Uh, a very regionally diversified portfolio of uh, loans. Uh, it's the biggest bank in Canada, one of the largest banks in the world. And what that means is as you as an individual going in as a business person with $100,000, um, because they are so large um, and they are so good at uh, you know delivering business services, as all the Canadian banks are, a Bank of Montreal included, uh, you will get, hopefully, better pricing, uh, for your small business account, uh, you will get uh, you know a cheaper banking checks will be cheaper that type of thing compared to what you might pay at the San Francisco First Republic Bank again because it's smaller. It's about scale. So if you think about banking today, many of the banking products are essentially commodities: checking account, savings accounts. The thing is, is the more you have of those, right, the more volume you have, the cheaper you can deliver that service. 
the fewer you have, the more expensive it is to deliver that service. So, you know, what you get when you walk into Royal Bank today is an international Canadian-based, well-regulated bank that can connect you and your business to different parts of the world, depending on where you want to, you know, let's say you want to expand your business, you want to do business in the U.S. or you want to do business in Europe, Royal Bank can help you get there uh, when you work with them. But if you're just like looking at, hey, I just want a place, a place to put my money, Royal Bank is going to be a good place to do it, comparatively speaking, because, again, you've got the oversight in Canada, you have the risk management within the bank, and then you have that solid record uh, of the bank's performance and the diversification of it. So, you know, something could go really wrong out in British Columbia uh, in terms of their economy uh, or Alberta. Let's say the oil and gas industry tanks and it's done that before. But Royal Bank isn't sitting there or any of the other Canadian banks saying, oh, I'm sorry, Sarah, can't help you with your uh, withdrawal today or to make payroll. Can you come back next week? That's not mm-hmm. happening, right? Do the Canadian banks take fewer risks than, let's say, American banks? Um, you know, aside from the diversification, is there a, I don't know, either regulatory driven uh, avoidance of risk or maybe a culturally driven avoidance of risk here that is different from America? Yeah. So, so one of the key things that happened after we got bank inspection in 1925 is the, the, I call it the entrepreneurial aspect of, of banking uh, began to shrink. And what I mean by that is when it was a wild west in, of banking in Canada, uh, banks, uh, you know, uh, gave a lot of authority to the branch managers uh, and they did a lot of loans that were against the Bank Act. They did mortgage loans. They did car loans, if you can believe it. You know, they're lending money for people to buy cars, uh, you know, in the, in the 19 you know, teens uh, and, and during the First World War. Uh, they were involved in all kinds of stuff. But once they started to enforce the Bank Act, what happened is you saw, okay, people pull back and say, all right, now we have to follow a set of rules. And what that means is if we don't follow a set of rules, we're going to get into trouble with the regulator and the finance minister, and they're going to start uh, you know, putting the screws to us in terms of you know, how we manage the bank. And so you saw as you start to follow the rules, you move away from an entrepreneurial approach to banking where local branch managers uh, you know, could make decisions on lending credit, taking, for example, character um, um, and, and collateral that perhaps wouldn't be uh, you know, a kosher in the Bank Act uh, into consideration. All that stuff over time gets wrung out of the banking system, and it becomes a very, um, I would call it not bureaucratic, but it's a very procedural process-based uh, approach to banking uh, that doesn't really start to move back into more of a entrepreneurial type of uh, mindset, I would say, until probably into the 80s, 90s. Uh, and so you had this period of, of uh, where, where, you know, it was a nine to three type of uh, business. There wasn't anything too exciting. Uh, but things started to change in the 60s with new technology. ABMs started coming out or ATMs. Uh, you know, you had, uh, banks were allowed to get into the mortgage business again. They were allowed to do car loans, get into consumer credit. And once you saw all that happening, then you, know, you would start to see a bit more competition, a bit more entrepreneurial spirit. But there was about that 50-year period where the banks were you know, very much I would say, imprisoned within the the Bank Act and the inspection that they endured. 
do we pay a price as consumers or customers of a bank for the relative stability and safety that we have compared to maybe the American banking system? Is there some cost that we bear for that? Yeah, the cost is is lost opportunity. Um, so, so what that means is uh, in the United States, where they have community regional banks and the big national banks, you have more options open to you. If you're, let's say you're a tech company starting a new business, uh, there's more opportunities to borrow money from folks uh, in the United States because there's more lenders and there's people who have different regulatory standards. So, you know, for example, the regional banks have different standards than uh, you would see the big national banks in the US and certainly different standards than what you see in Canada. What that means is, um, you know, the local branch managers uh, in these regional uh, branches still have uh, a lot of say in America, for example, as to, uh, you know, Taylor, if you need a loan to start up a whole podcast business, uh, that might be something they'll go, I know Taylor and I know Sarah. You guys need money? No problem. We'll make it happen. Whereas if you walked into a Canadian bank, they'd be sort of looking at you like, I don't know, do you guys have any, like, do you have a house or something that you can give us? Like, and that would, be a better great, podcast? that would be a great question to ask. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's uh it's so and so that's 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 the price you pay right but this is the trade off that can- Canadians have have made between you know it's it's slower economic growth in a sense but uh, what it also is is a uh, confidence in your banking system that the money will be there uh, when you need to take it out. Mm-hmm. So what's changing now? Uh, in the kind of fallout of Silicon Valley Bank, because that was one of the big criticisms, right, is that this bank was kind of, you know, lending like left, right and center. Sure, you have an interesting tech idea, you know, take some money here, throw some money there. And so how, I guess, so how is that going to change anything about the opportunity that's available to entrepreneurs in America, and especially now within the context of the the Treasury Secretary now stepping up to say, you know, we're going to guarantee all the deposits, right? So I'm just I'm just wondering, kind of within the, the the news of this week, how are we to think about opportunity in the states? So, so there's opportunity both in the states and and in Canada. Keep in mind, a lot of Canadian entrepreneurs move down to the states to get their funding, um, and and uh, you know Silicon Valley Bank had an office up here too, and uh, you know some of the Canadian banks are looking at their portfolio of loans, and they may be taking over bits and pieces of that. So here's the thing. Money is no longer free, right? So, you know, when COVID hit, you saw bank rates go down to literally zero. So there was so much money in the system. It was easy to borrow money from the banks. They were throwing money at you if you had a half-decent idea, particularly in the United States. The problem is now, right, when you can put your money in the bank and get 5% on the GIC, um, or you would put it into, you know, a Canadian uh, securities like treasury bills, the U.S. Treasury bills, and you're getting paid 4% or a little bit more than that, why would you give your money to, uh, you know, some risky venture and you never know it's going to, you're ever, ever going to get it back. And so this is why you see all of a sudden, for example, Microsoft uh, is, uh, you know, all about saving money, operating costs and laying people off because now their investors, uh, you know, the people who finance them are saying, uh, why should I give you money? Uh, you know, explain why I shouldn't just leave it in the bank or or put it in treasury bills because, you know, there's risk involved with your business. You're doing all this, uh, you know, virtual reality stuff with people walking around with headsets on. It looks kind of crazy. 
uh, you know, explain to me why you need my money. Um, and so, so now uh, there is uh, a viable option for people with cash or with capital to put it in a place where they know they're going to get a, a guaranteed return and the capital is largely safe. If you are an entrepreneur, this makes it very difficult. You need to, your, your sales pitch has to change because your sales pitch isn't just, I have a great idea and it could work. It's that I have a great idea and I'm going to make you a lot of money. And, and you have to be able to deliver on that lot of money piece. Just a, I guess, big picture question here, because I know we're coming to the, the end of the time we have, uh, we have you for. But should Canadians ever be worried about a bank run? Uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, you know, our, all our banks are systemically important. The big charter banks, the, the big, uh, you know, five, six national bank as well, they're all systemically important. What that means is, while we have Canadian deposit insurance, um, you know, for $100,000, politically speaking, no government is going to allow a bank to fail and for depositors to not have their money. And while you never say never, who knows what could happen tomorrow? If you look at the landscape, you know, we have, we have you know, five, six large banks. Um, we have a couple of smaller banks, Laurentian Bank, which is larger Quebec, and then you have Canadian Western Bank. Uh, but both of those banks are are um, working hard to diversify their, their, their reach across the country. They're trying to be like the big banks. So I have not seen um, you know, anything that would give me cause to say Canadians would need to worry about bank runs in the short term or medium term uh, future or even long term future. You never know what can happen. Uh, but I would say it's not something that I would anticipate in, 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 in the years to come at all. Mm -hmm. Are these like new challenger type banks facing any different risks or it's because they're like under the same umbrella, I guess, like insurance wise and backed by the big banks that like a neo financial, for instance, is just as safe as like the bank that it's backed by? Oh, so so this is a good point. So where the challenge is coming from is open banking. I don't know if you've heard that term in Canada. Uh, so uh, we were supposed to have open banking by now. And let me explain what this is. This is the big challenge to our existing banking system. Open banking means that, you know, Taylor and Sarah, you own your information. The bank doesn't own it. And what it means is that uh, you can start having fintech companies emerge um, that would help serve your needs. So rather than you go into, you know, the local uh, TD bank branch and you get their visa and you get their checking account. Right. You may go to a website which lists, you know, all the all the different checking accounts that the Canadian banks offer, um, you know, the credit cards they offer. And then it helps you figure out which one is best for you. And you go through there and you may have like a TD credit card. You may have a Bank of Montreal checking account. You may have a RBC, a GIC. And what that does is it unbundles relationship that banks try to build with their clients in Canada. And that. Is, is their biggest challenge that they're facing. So when Canada comes forward with its open banking legislation, which hopefully uh, will happen in the next few years, what you're going to see is a rise of smaller fintech firms that will basically um, you know, give you, uh, Taylor and Sarah, access to all the different services um, that they can provide or that the big banks can provide, but it's, it's through a, a portal that's cheaper for you. And uh, for the banks, that's a problem because they want all your business. Because the more business they have of yours, the more money they make. 
how would that look like from a consumer perspective? Like, let's use, I guess, like Wealth Simple as an example. Would it be like, would a platform like that change their interface so you can pick between checking accounts or would they do what other challenger banks do and like strip the branding and all you would see is like, these are checking accounts. These are the different um, qualities of the checking account. Pick one and you don't really know what institution is kind of backing it at the end of the day, but you access it through let's say the, I'm using Wealthsimple as an example, this might be an awful example, but I'm using it through the Wealthsimple platform. Sure. So, so Wealthsimple, Wealthsimple is, is a good example. So, you know, Wealthsimple uh, may start as a bank, just like remember ING was a bank and now it's Tangerine Bank. ING was a Netherlands bank. It was a digital bank. So what they come in with is they don't have the legacy costs of the big banks. You know, Wealthsimple doesn't have branches all across the country or anything like that. And, you know, what they what they can do for you is offer you banking products at a much cheaper cost in theory, right? Provided they're managing their risk and everything behind the scenes appropriately uh, and they have their charter, they can do that. Uh, you know, the question that you need to ask though is, can they really provide the full range of services that you're looking for? And maybe at certain times in your life, they do. But this is the question that, you know, people as they start to, um, you know, uh, get older and, and their needs change, they need mortgages, lines of credit, um, you know, their kids are going to go to university, all that kind of stuff. You want to have um, a relationship with a, a bank where you can go and say, hey, I need money for X, right? And if you don't have that kind of relationship, if it's all digital, um, uh, you know, the, maybe it works for some, maybe it doesn't work for others. I don't know. But you'll see Wealthsimple be a platform. They'll do their own product line. Then you may see, uh, you know, folks connect you to different products um, that work for you, like mortgage brokers do. So if you want to, like, you can go to a mortgage broker office today and say, hey, I need, you know, $500,000 mortgage. Then basically what they'll do is they'll say, okay, here's all the options. Well, imagine if all that is digitized, right? And you just go into a uh, mortgagegenius.com. And say this is this is uh, you know this is how much I need this is the house this is my income all that kind of stuff and then it pops up on the screen all the different lenders uh, that are available to you uh, you pick the, the term the rates and all that works for you and boom you're gone you got your mortgage your five hundred thousand bucks is uh, ready to go uh, you know that's the kind of future that we could be looking at. Okay, cool. well, John, that was fantastic. That was super interesting. I loved also getting into the history of it a little bit. Uh, I feel like there's a ton of stories there that we could have spent oh, yeah. more time on. Yeah, yeah, there's lots. So thanks for doing this. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, well, that was such a fascinating conversation with John. I, I especially, the history nerd in me, really enjoyed the uh, the detailed history and how all these things came about, like how Sir John A. Macdonald lost $80,000 of his own money in a bank failure. Uh, <laughs> and if it were up to me, you know, I just would have kept asking those questions forever. But thankfully, uh, Sarah, you're here to keep us on things that more people are probably more interested in. So what did you what did you think of that? Yeah, just here to keep everyone in the present day, although it is so interesting to have like a historian's perspective on the events that kind of led us up to the things that we're reading about this week. Um, yeah. What I do find interesting, honestly, taking it back a little bit is how, you know, someone somewhere at some point just said, you know what, this whole regional bank thing, not a good idea. We got to phase them out. Um, and kind of, you know, set the foundation for, I guess, like the system that we see today. And I know that 
there are trade-offs, which we talked about with having these kind of big national banks run things. Um, but I leave that conversation feeling like pretty good about, you know, the, I guess like the size and the strength of the financial institutions that we have, just namely because we don't really have to have the same worries as we're, you know, seeing that some um, depositors are having in the U.S. And so you, you don't think of our system being that different than the U.S., um, but looking at banking as one example, um, that was a, a good learning for me, I think. And the, you know, what we seem to see in the U.S. is just a trend towards greater consolidation and a little bank will fail and then either it'll get bailed out by... Mm -hmm you know, the federal government or a bigger bank will come in and take it over. And now that little bank is a big bank and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So part of me wonders if we've just sort of, if we just accelerated that process through regulation that they're going through, through these like booms and busts and bank failures, which cause a lot of chaos and, and pain for people. Maybe better just to skip all of that and go right to the end point. Um, yeah, I feel pretty good but the fact that the system has evolved to a place where you and I are no longer tasked with having to assess the financial health of like oh my God. TD Bank. Can to you imagine? <laughs> that is, it's lunacy. I, that's kind of why I wanted to end on the the note about uh, what sort of risk we actually face, and like, are, is there any risk of a bank run for Canadians? Because at the end of the day, that's really how most people interact with the banking system, and that's how it matters to them, right? It's like, can I get my money? when I want, I think is how John put it. And that's totally true. Um, and I was reassured by his answer that, you know, you really don't have to worry about a bank run in Canada. And if you do find yourself worrying about a bank run in Canada, there's probably much more serious things going on. And now we have a real worse. answer as to why all the banks look like Greek temples. Oh my God. Yeah. Is, like no you think idea. people are going to pull no money idea. out of the TD at like Wellington and Bay. Like that place is way too nice for you to not feel like your money. Is and it, no, it, and it makes total sense when you think of it. I never understood why they were always built like that, Columns, but it really does. And that is so perfect. I think because, you know, they had, they're publishing their, their, their books essentially in the newspaper, but they know nobody can understand that. So they're like, Oh, what are we going to do? We're going to build a big, rock building that looks like a temple <laughs> and that's going to tell people what's really going on because that yeah. is how people make these decisions you know myself we're gonna have a I'm literal not, yeah. vault that looks so big yeah. and secure and that imagery will be enough too which for you know what it's for and it worked didn't it <laughs> yeah well i suppose it did although <laughs> we we should go back and find the banks that failed and then try to find the buildings that they were in and see how they like if they analysis. use that style or not, that would be an interesting, interesting exercise. All right. Well, you get into that this weekend and you let me know yeah. what you come, <laughs> you come up with. A little Sunday task. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Well, I well, think that's we a good place. Yes. I think that's a great place okay. to leave it. Perfect. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to our daily business newsletter. You can find that at www.readthepeak.com. And we'll see you next week. Bye.